Hi, Melanie here from Aviation Tours, unique itineraries for aviation enthusiasts, taking you to some of the most amazing air shows and events in the UK and Australia. They're leisurely, comfortable, fun, escorted, and to all the places you've been wanting to visit. If independent travels out of your comfort zone, or you just prefer the good company of fellow enthusiasts, on a tour taking in the best aviation, motoring and military museums, take a look at our website, aviationtoursnz.com, for more info and join us on the trip of a lifetime. Or call me for a chat on 021-076-8308. Vintage Aviation News is pleased to support Wings Over Britain and wings over New Zealand. And we'll be checking in with reports as Dave's tour progresses. Vintage Aviation News is an organization founded by a group of passionate vintage aviation enthusiasts who love to share the history and technology aviation museums preserve for the public. It's our intention to play a role in safeguarding the heritage of these beautiful machines by providing increased awareness and education through the use of internet-based digital media. Vintage Aviation News is an online news resource dedicated to warbirds, aviation museums, vintage aviation, and aviation heritage, and the many enthusiasts who wish to know more about them. The goal of this site is to provide fresh, daily news content for a large community of aviation fans who visit our page regularly. Vintage Aviation News Online can be found on your usual social media channels and at VintageAviationNews.com. Wings Over Britain is proudly supported by the New Zealand Bomber Command Association, telling the stories of Bomber Command and the New Zealanders who served. Wings Over Britain and the Wings Over New Zealand show greatly acknowledges the fantastic support from Peter and Carola Wheeler of the Hauraki Brewing Company. And we'd like to acknowledge the awesome support from Mel and Kev Salisbury at Aviation Tours NZ. And a huge thanks to all the others out there who kindly supported the tour and the series. Without them, the series wouldn't have been made. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to Wings Over Britain on the Wings Over New Zealand show. Today I'm talking with Tony Hoskins of the Sandy Spitfire Project. Hello, hi, Dave. Hi, Tony. Hi. <laughs> what have you done to our weather? We've had beautiful weather for two months, and it's now raining. Yeah. So it's, it's probably cleared up in New Zealand, I imagine, because it was like this before I left. And was I it? With me, yeah. <laughs> you brought it over. Yeah. Oh well. Well, do enjoy your time here. Thank you. It's great to see you. So, uh, what can you tell me about the project? We- where did it come from? Where did it start? And what's it all about? Okay, so Sandy Spitfire Project started about seven or eight years ago, really. It was back in the sort of early part of 2016. Uh, I was doing some work in Norway, and uh, I was just chatting to the guys. Uh, I was doing some airline work out there, some contract airline work. And we were sitting up at 30,000 feet over, over Narvik, uh, looking down at uh, all of the mountains. We just got talking about the war, and they said, oh, there's loads of stuff still out here. And I was like, Really? That's really interesting. I've obviously had quite a long time. I've been in aviation in the engineering side for about 30 years. Okay. And uh, I specialise in restorations, particularly of vintage aircraft, so 1930s to 1960s, particularly warbirds. Um, so I have fingers in several pies of different yep. companies. I've done lots of things. I've worked with some great companies like uh, Imperial War Museum, uh, Hawker Restorations, for a short period, uh, 
aero vintage as it was then. It's now Retrotech. Um, and I was chief chief engineer at Boltby Flight Academy. I've worked for um, uh, under HFL for some approvals on Spitfires and things like this. So I've had a huge amount of involvement with wartime aeroplanes. Right. And at the time when I was doing this contract work for Eurocontrol, um, I was doing a lot of work to try and find parts and projects for other people. Yeah. And... I really thought, I've done all of this for years. There must be a story out there that's really going to capture the imagination. And, of course, in 2018, we were having the 100th anniversary of the Royal Air Force coming up. Right. And I've done a number of TV documentaries over the years about colditz and prisoners of war and making weird and wonderful engineering things to make them work. Yep. Um, and the Antiques Roadshow, if you get that down in New Zealand, I've been yes. on that several times about wartime memorabilia and okay. stories. And... Um, I thought, well, there's got to be a story out there that's going to capture the imagination. And as you probably find, you talk to veterans and people and things like this, you can get 10, 11 people giving you 10, 11 different stories about one particular event in the war or aviation. Yeah. But it's very difficult to tie it all together because all their experiences are correct and yeah. true. But it's relating them all. And I thought, let's look at this another way. Let's find an object that's got loads of stories attached to it and then see if that can actually explain a particular part of the war. Right. Now I thought, it's got to appeal to lots of people, so if you walk out onto the street in the UK, um, it's not particularly aviation-minded, so if you say name an aeroplane, they're gonna say Spitfire Concorde Jumbo Jet, yeah. and that's it. And I thought, well, only one of those has been in the Royal Air Force, <laughs> so <Yeah>. therefore, <laughs> it's really gotta be a Spitfire, so let's go and find a Spitfire that's got lots of stories attached to it. And of course, there aren't many Spitfires lying around waiting to be found in sort of 2016-17. No. Um, <clears throat> so that's where the challenge came in. And I sat down, I did lots of research, but I took on board what these guys had said, that Scandinavia had an awful lot of uh, wrecks and relics and things that were still out there. Yeah. Um, the reason for that is because it's really difficult to get to. <laughs> so right. I, think, I think about remote areas and then you get to the fjordlands uh, and the western northern coast of Norway yeah. when you have there are no roads and if there are roads they're blocked for seven or eight months of the year because of snow yeah. and then you have to take boats in between various different pieces that's why all these wrecks are still there so um I thought well let's get looking and the nice thing is our records here in the UK and our national archives in London are actually pretty good now okay. most of the stuff has been released yeah. so I sat down and said well, let's go and do some research. And I went through all of these losses because I ruled out UK, Germany, France, um, which kind of left us with conflicts in areas that were getting a bit punchy, like Libya, Russia, um, yeah. Finland. Bears are in Finland. Makes recovery of aeroplanes a little bit more uh, challenging. Right. So um, I thought, well, let's have a look. And I basically focused in on Norway. And there were a number of missing aeroplanes that had still not been located and of course the wonders of the internet were that I could just sit and type in their registrations and see if anyone went oh it's in this museum or so and so recovered it there yeah. um, and that narrowed it down a bit further and then you obviously take out the ones that are war graves and people are still there um, because rightfully I don't go anywhere near those and then you look at deep water recoveries which whilst they look fantastic when they come out the water you have many zeros on the end of the <laughs> of the number that it's going to cost you to yeah. go and recover this yeah. so i was looking for a land stroke mountain based recovery of a spitfire with an excellent story uh, in which the individual had not been killed uh, which is quite a task to find and that really took me a couple of years okay. um, and i found this story of spitfire aa810 
belonging to a young man called Sandy Gunn. Um, and it didn't appear to have been found. And he was listed as a prisoner of war. And when I looked him up on the prisoner's war records, it just had one line, murdered as part of the Great Escape. Oh, wow. And I thought, this is really sad, because this one man's whole life has just been signed up in right. one sentence. Right. And I thought, there must be some more on him. And I'm type, 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 nothing. And I don't know what it was. There was something about it that made me think, this is interesting. This is really interesting. It was a photo reconnaissance Spitfire. So it was an unarmed Spitfire, yep. painted blue, operating a long way from home. Norway is a long way from the UK, particularly up in the sort of uh, Trondheim, just outside Arctic Circle sort of area. Yep. Um, now, I'd grown up in Oxfordshire, so not far from RAF Benson, which is the spiritual home of uh, PRU. In fact, the whole county is. There's several airfields they operate from. We think of Lincolnshire as Bomber County yep. and Oxfordshire as... PRU County. Right. Um, so again, I thought, oh, it's local to where I grew up. And I looked into it and I, I thought, well, no one seems to have found it. No one seems to know anything about this guy. Let's try and go and find it. And that took another year of going backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards to, to Norway yeah. and basically trying to find people who were there at the time. Um, and we ended up getting, we knew which the village he'd been captured in. Yeah. And uh, we went there, the local community were absolutely fantastic young community um complete range of people who who could help from teachers in the schools to um to people working local infrastructure to people within the the council yeah. um and we basically got all the elders of the village together and we put lots of chocolate cake and lots of coffee on the table and a big map and people would sort of be like well i lived here and i saw it up there and you draw a line on the map and then you go to the next person and go well i lived here and i saw it there right. and we draw big crosses on the ground and we roughly came to an area where it was. And then you just basically go and start walking. Yeah. And uh, with a few local people saying, oh, there's bits there. The village, they robbed loads of stuff from the wreck, particularly in the 50s. It's so remote that they said, oh, you know, we've got this. We found the generator from the engine was actually attached to a water wheel wow. in the village, still to this day. Wow. And the water wheel turns and it powers the electric fence for the cows in the, in the village. The parachute <laughs> that he bailed out on was made into a christening outfit and it's kept in the church. And all the children who were born in the village are christened in the parachute wow. that he came down in back in 1942. So it was a fabulous story yeah. and I ended up recovering the aeroplane uh, with the help of a lot of school children because we went out in the summer still not particularly warm <laughs> in the summer <laughs> just outside the Arctic Circle right up a mountain yeah. um, it's a really strange situation in Norway in that you basically aren't allowed wheeled vehicles up there uh, and I really couldn't afford a helicopter yeah. um, so we basically had to go up and disassemble this whole Spitfire that was basically sitting flat pancaked in a bog and hand carry it down off the mountain piece by piece uh, over the course of about four or five days. Wow. Uh, and importantly, there was about 75% of the aeroplane left. Um, we picked up every piece that we could, uh, including the radiator, which we had to bring down on a kind of like sled that we had to sort of make and carry. Um, but we didn't hurt anybody in the whole process. So we had no injuries, probably a bit of trench foot because it was really damp, but... Um, and maybe a little bit of liver poisoning from the amount of alcohol that was consumed <laughs> once we'd actually recovered it. Um, but, uh, uh, which also comes at a price in uh, in Norway. For any of listeners who have visited there, it's uh, it's pretty appalling, the, the price of alcohol. So, um, yeah, it, it was a fabulous thing to get together. Um, and then we came back, and uh, I sat there and I thought about it, and I thought, actually, this is really... We, we could rebuild this. There's enough here. 
to rebuild it. And it's actually in pretty good shape. I mean, all the rubber fittings in the coolant system, they were still pliable. Once we took the the caps off, you could still move all the rubber fittings. And you're like, this is amazing. And the inner tubes still survive from the tyres and things like that. The magnesium parts had all fizzed away. Um, But the aluminium was actually pretty good. Wow. And uh, the cam lock still worked on the cowling uh, bits that we found. And it, it it was really interesting. Um, so we announced it to the world at the end of 2018, and it just exploded. Wow. It really did explode. And loads of people came to me uh, talking about their uncles, grandfathers, fathers, who had all flown as part of this unit or mentioned it, because they were going, oh, there isn't much written. There aren't very many books about it. No one's really talked about it. Where Have you got more information? Or we've got information. Are you interested in what happened? Because no one's asked us before. And that's really what then caused the whole project to escalate from 2018 onwards. And we now find ourselves in this situation where it's about five or six of us working on this project. We're all young people, which is really nice. (laughs) So we range between about 30 and about 48, 49. Um, And uh, we meet so many incredible people with so many incredible stories. And we find out little things here, there and everywhere that you just go, that, that would make a Hollywood film writer go, nah, you can't put that. <laughs> yeah. And actually, yes, you can. This happened. That happened. It's absolutely amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we can get New Zealand into it wow. <laughs> because there was a lot of New Zealanders who flew in the PIU. Fantastic. Fantastic. So, yeah, that's, that's basically where we've gone with the restoration. Yeah. We hope to bring the aeroplane to Wanaka. There okay. has been some interest. Wow, okay. It's a long way for us to come. <laughs> so we might be asking for some help when we do. Yeah. Um, but we are hoping to fly... Well, we should be ready to fly right at the end of next year, end of 2024. Oh, right, okay. Um, it might slip. The weather here in October, November, December, not really conducive to first flight of an aeroplane, particularly if we then have to keep on running it through the winter yeah. uh, to stop it condensating. It might be that if we get at the end of the summer, if, ever, if everything aligns and we're ready at the end of the summer, we might well give it a go. Um, if it starts to slip and it doesn't look like we're going to have a particularly sort of dry winter, um, I might push it back into the spring. We're not, we're not rushing. We're not cutting corners. Yeah. It has to be done properly and it has to be done right. And I don't want to break people by trying to get the thing done we manage it very well we're we're (laughs) whenever we talk to people about it we have the whole restoration spread over many different uh, companies across the country doing multiple things at multiple times to bring it all together so i try and project manage it as i would any of my client airplanes that we do um but the important thing is it's done right and it's done accurately and uh it's done to the absolute perfect level so for example (laughs) my colleagues laugh at the level of detail i'm going into it not only have we managed to find all the original fittings to actually fit the flare gun to the side of the seat which is not something that's normally included in the restorations but i've actually managed to find someone who's going to make me all of the cartridges to go in the seat at the front right and i've also managed to find what the colors for the day are on the day that it flew so the airplane will fly with the correct cartridges in the seat for the colors of the day for the day that it was shot down That's and the map that will be in will be correct to the date other than new made parts that have gone in of original wartime parts we're not putting anything in that was built after the data when the airplane actually flew okay yeah, so yeah. it might have been renovated <laughs> but even down to the instrumentation everything on the instrumentation is 1941 or earlier yeah so i've made sure 
that we've got absolutely everything that we possibly can for the right era of the aeroplane. And if we've, we've, we've recovered everything that's usable so far, certainly from the fuselage and the starboard wing, we're working on the port wing at the moment, yeah. uh, which was the worst one, unfortunately, for, for fire damage and bullet hole damage. But um, it will still deem a couple of hundred parts out of, out of the port, okay. port wing. Okay. Quite a lot of the starboard wing will go again. Quite a lot of the bottom of the fuselage will go again. Um, but, yeah, effectively, even when we've then gone and found and located and sourced wreckage from other aeroplanes, we've also made sure they've been of a similar production run time to the aeroplane that we're, we're putting back together. So wow. it will be hopefully around about 35% original AA810 wow. when it flies, right. um, and probably another between 5 and 10% of original wartime manufacture other aeroplanes taking us somewhere between 40 and 45%. And then obviously it's got new spar booms, it's got new spar webs, um, it's got uh, the carry-through spars are new, all the flight critical items are very new. <laughs> and then of course we have to change all the parts that have got asbestos in it. So we've right. had to do that, but yeah. we've sourced original canopy parts from factory that have never been, never been drilled off even. Wow. Um, I've got original front screen, finding things like door catches, um, Managed to get an early Mark One undercarriage warning horn. Actually arrived yesterday, yeah. so it's uh, it's 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 trying to get everything completely to date, accurate down even down to the badge that goes on the front of the spinner. We found the toy company that originally made those badges for Vickers back in 1938, and they still had an example. They didn't have any dies for it. Didn't have any drawings, so we remade the dies. Right to stamp the original enamel badge and have it hand enameled. They said, look, we can send it to India and get it mass produced. I was like, you need one. Yeah. Do me one as it was yeah. to sit right on the front of the aeroplane. And they're missing, you go to the science museum and things like that, and you can see where it had the badge on the front of it and someone's pinched it, right, <laughs> but right. we're putting it, we're putting it back on. Okay. So. What, what mark of Spitfire is this? So, mark, so it started life as a Mark one. It was intended, it was ordered in July 1940 yeah. uh, as a fighter, part of the second batch of 500 from the Air Ministry. Um, obviously, it's getting a bit punchy during 1940 and we we're having to disperse factories everywhere, so production was kind of pretty poor. Um, obviously, Castle Bromwich didn't do a very good start when they were doing things, um, so they dispersed it right out to the countryside. Yeah. And this particular airplane, it was decreed it was going to be built in Reading, right by the train station in Reading, and it is a total bitter. We literally, of all the parts that we've recovered, we look at the stamps from all the different companies it came from, and you've got bits made at Heston Aircraft Company, we've got bits made at um, General Aircraft Limited in Hounslow, we've got bits made on the Isle of Wight, we've got bits all over. Right. And it's literally like they've gone, right, next frame five, next frame 11, we'll have a bit of this, bit of that, bolt that together, because they were cannon fodder. Yeah. These PR early PR airplanes had such a high... Uh, rate of attrition yeah. it's unbelievable and going through it all and again because i want to get it accurate um <clears throat> we know it started life intended to have a merlin 3 fitted yeah. because it has all the starter exciter magneto on the firewall um which wasn't included with the merlin 45 which is what it crashed with yeah. so we put it all together and i remember a few people on the internet went oh no shouldn't have that <laughs> merlin 45 and you go they're actually the original parts from the airplane right and then we found other bits and pieces that are particular to the very early mark ones we've got dated parts back to sort of about 
1938, that okay. sort of time, yeah. uh, for when they've been inspected and signed off. And you go, it's really a bit sort of pretty much all the rest of the Mark I stuff they had, because production was all moving into the Mark V. Yeah. I think it's basically everything left over mass-produced Mark I, throw it into this, we'll put some PR wings on it, so it had the full leading-edge Bowser tanks, 66 gallons a side, yep. um, on a fuselage that's tended to be a fighter. However, <laughs> we've opened up the wings since, yes. and we opened it up to see lots of lovely machine gun ports in um. the wings. So even the wings that to have started life either intended to be a fighter or potentially even recycled from a fighter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they've just put the leading edge tanks on. That's what we're still trying to investigate. We've got some really funny things going on, uh, particularly in the starboard wing, Certainly field repairs. Mm -hmm. Now, we know the aeroplane was shot at by Tirpitz on its second-to-last flight. Okay. So whether it had to have a very, very quick repair out at the wingtip or not, or whether these wings had another life beforehand and came together, I somewhat doubt it because I don't think they were that pushed at the time. Yeah. But for all we know, it could be that wings were coming off the line from the early Mark 1s uh, and being recycled. The ailerons, for example, we know are fabric ailerons. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But they've been field modified to metal skinned oh, because wow. we're talking October 41 first flight. But we've got ailerons that were decreed, don't use them in sort of March, April 1940. Yeah. So these ailerons sat around and we couldn't find the drawings for how it was skinned until we went to the repair manual. And there's actually a, a, a part of the repair manual that says for field modification and upgrade of fabric ailerons to metal. Do this, 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 and this, drill that up, pop rivet that into there, and away you go. So we've still got all of the original wooden fillets that go in the front and all these really funny cast weights that go in it, which are completely different to all the other ways. And then all of this metal skin hanging off the back. So yeah. we've, we've peeled them all apart and they looked so badly crushed when we got it. We opened it up, there were ribs inside that you could literally wipe it with some acetone or something like that, and they came up brand new. Wow. They still had all the ink stamps on it from when they'd been made in the factory, and literally a visual inspection. They were still straight, not an ounce of corrosion on it, none of the holes pulled, really good condition. Amazing. So loads of it has gone again. So about half the starboard aid on, I think, is going again entirely. We've had to change the spar on it, but most of the ribs and all the fittings and everything else are going again. Okay. Um, so it's been a real interesting history uh, research, just looking at the aeroplane as an, as an item because yeah. it's got all these weird and wonderful that little is... things that we just can't quite work out. I mean, it didn't have a radio fitted, didn't have a radio mast, but it's got all the structure in it for it. Okay. So, it, I mean, I guess it's all integral as part of the uh, the, the fuselage between yep. frames uh, 12 and 13. But um, still, it carried around all this extra stuff because, of course, it didn't have any armour plate, it didn't have any radio, it didn't have any guns. Yeah. They took everything out, stripped it right out, everything off the front. Um, and these guys were then sent four, five, six hours into enemy territory yeah. with no way of getting out other than flying into a cloud or trying to outrun them through speed. Yeah. And it didn't work. It really didn't work. No. <laughs> I guess if it's a, a Mark 1 engine or a Mark 1 Spitfire, it's, it's not going to be very fast. It's not going to be like the later ones. You say that. Because it doesn't weigh very much, because of course they've taken so much weight out, we're not putting the leading edge tanks in. Yeah. We obviously, it was a big, I'm going for accuracy, yeah. but I also have to operate the aeroplane. Yeah. And the way that they made these leading edge fuel tanks had extra sets of webs involved, it had 
really nasty sealant involved. It has a lot more openings in the wing for inspections and the purposes of it, but they leaked like a sieve. Yeah. Ultimately, I've got to operate this aeroplane. We're in a very different environment now. Back then, they might last four or five flights. We want this aeroplane to last 100 years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we're making problems for ourselves that if you start to get little bolts move and you know, we, Spitfires do all move structurally whilst, yeah. they're, whilst they're over the years. Yeah. That's why we have to put them in for majors. Um, we'd be creating big problems for ourselves yeah. for something when actually do we need to carry an extra 122 gallons of fuel around? No, we don't. Right. We've got plenty enough in the fuselage. Um, so whilst all the fittings will be installed and everything else, we won't be putting the the sealant in that would seal up the uh, the particular tanks. Um, but it basically means that if you take the guns out and the armour out and the radio out and half the rest of the kit out that you don't need, it effectively becomes like a paper bag. Yeah. Now, that paper bag in the Mark 1 was designed to have about 990 horsepower up the front. They then squeezed a Merlin 45 into the front of it at like 1,470 horsepower okay. into the paper bag yep. that was supposed to have 990 horsepower. Then you put the de Havilland constant speed metal propeller on the front of it, um, and it goes a bit like a pocket rocket. Okay. It's got far too much power for its its size. Bearing in mind, everyone describes the Mark V to be the near-on perfect flying machine. Yep. So effectively, we've got about the same power as the Mark V. We've got the metal propeller rather than the wooden propeller blades, yep. um, which obviously, as you well know, the difference between flying wooden propellers and metal propellers, the rate that it spins up, the amount of energy it carries and everything else is very different. Yep. Um, but now take out the armour plate and now take out the radios yep. and now take out all the other stuff, even on the canopy and the windscreen and all the other bits and pieces you've got to go with it and strip yep. it right down. Yep. So you've got a Mark V on bit steroids with yeah. lots more flush riveting and everything else sealed quite nicely. Wow. The, the, I, my understanding from the PR11s that fly, which are effectively a Mark 9, but again a bit lighter, mm. is they go like stink. Okay. Yeah. So I, I think it's going to be a good, fun machine. Really fun machine. So does this um, Mark 1 PR Spitfire have the deeper chin like the, like the later ones? No, what they did, because um, again, the Merlins, the Merlins were not great, yeah. particularly this part of the war, and particularly the Merlin 45. Yeah. Um, it wasn't intended for high altitude operations. It was intended for the, the, the clip wing Mark V, low level. Um, they cropped down the supercharger. They made a few other little changes to it. Um, quite a rush job, shall yeah. we say. Um, engine reliability was pretty poor, particularly in the PRU as well at the time. Um, what they did, because of the super long range of it, um, they fitted a 19-gallon oil tank behind the spar in the left-hand wing, outboard of the uh, wheel well. Yep. Um, we are going to be fitting that tank in there, but it will actually be an extra fuel tank. So we will carry an extra 19 gallons of fuel, because the nice thing is with the engine maintenance and standards we have today, we can actually get the oil consumption down considerably. Right, right. And uh, I've looked after Merlin engines before, which you know came in and we were burning gallons and gallons of oil per hour. Uh, and we managed to get it down with lots of use and lots of um, good engine management yep. and handling. We managed to reduce it down by to about a fifth of what it had come in with. Wow. Just by 
Well, effectively, with one of them, we had to take it up around the Isle of Wight at about 85% flower power yeah. and fly laps of the Isle of Wight <laughs> at high power to bed the rings in properly because yeah. all the balls are glazed. So um, we managed to get things like that to improve yeah. it. And just little tweaking and tightening and just keeping an eye on things, it starts to improve it. So okay. we're not going to go super long distances with 810. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we've effectively got the standard 37 and 48 gallons in the fuselage. We stick another 19 gallons in the wing. Um, and we're, we're not doing bad then. For, for, for food. We're going to have about an hour, hour and 10, hour 15 of usable flight time with a reserve rather than about an hour, which you would normally get with a right. with another baby Spitfire. Um, so, you know, it's we will include that. We've got the drawings for that. We've actually got a large amount of the tanks for that. Um, we're missing some details because, unfortunately, the PR4 was very special. Yeah. I thought when I found the modification book, I was going to go, brilliant. It's going to say, take a Mark 1 and add this, 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 and this. No. <laughs> no chance. <laughs> There's stuff that's in there. Vickers had an amazing amazing knack of basically putting throwaway comments in there that you know just like use this particular type of rivet and you're going i've never heard of that and it's not a vgs part or an ags part and you start looking around and going oh right it was a commercial part that was available in like the car industry for coach builders making austin seven bodies and it was a particular thing made by the morris car company and you're going because of course it's just what was available at the time But of course, if you knew that, it's great. We're now 80 years on. I didn't work at Morris 80 years no. ago. <laughs> I phoned a wonderful chap the other day at a company up near Birmingham, and I spoke to him about this particular fastener, and he went, oh, yeah, well, they were made at this, and they had like a 155-degree countersink angle. I'm like, I love you. Come and talk to me, because I haven't got anything on this. Because, of course, we have to justify everything to our CAA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because there's no, if there's no drawing, and there's no other real survivors... There are lots of bits of wreckage. So I talked to all of the people who have recovered PR4 wreckage. And there's some bits that they've got and I haven't. And there's some bit that I've got that they haven't. And we do work together. And that's quite nice. There's a lovely restoration in Sweden. Um, and I talk to Sven a lot. Uh, and he sends me information and I share information with him. And we'll be able to get this together. But there are still some bits that we just go, did we have this? Did we have that? We're really fortunate that there's one living veteran who flew the PR4. Okay. Not this particular aeroplane, yeah. but another PR4. And we've been able to write to him and go, look, even down to the map case, we've found a drawing for a special map case that went into the PR4, completely yeah. different to all the other Mark 1s. And then we wrote to him, we're going, because I didn't find a map case in mine, and Sven didn't find one in his, but the dates are right for the production. And he yeah. went, oh, yeah, yeah, they all came out with it. But often we ripped them out because they were no good and we just had big flat leather ones because you could only put a certain number of maps in it. Right. So what they ended up doing was making up like leather folders that they shoved down the side of the seat so they could put all their maps in it and going, I wouldn't have known that if right. you weren't still there. Yeah, so that's yeah. probably why we didn't find it because it wasn't in it. It probably been taken out or someone's robbed it. Yeah. Um, we're putting it in because for the date for production, it should have it according to the drawing. So it will it will flip in there. And it's also potentially a place that we can put the radio, modern radio and transponder without it being seen. But okay. We are doing our utmost to have working cameras in it, um, to have it completely as it was as per the day. Yeah. Um, down to all the markings, all the reconnaissance blisters that go on the side, everything that we can possibly put in, the amount of work and effort and energy that is going into making this accurate is really important. And we're using apprentices to do it. 
So what we've been doing, we've been going out to companies that have legacy links. Yeah. And so I found all the suppliers listings for the Air Ministry to Vickers and Supermarine. Yeah. And then I've traced through every single company. Where do they go? Who do they get sold to? Who were they bought out by? Who are they own now? Then start going to them, going through their archives, because some of them have fantastic archive right. things with drawings. Yeah. And we found we found a complete set of Dunlop drawings. Okay. For every single part on a Spitfire, apart from a couple of bits of the very early V-shaped brake regulator uh, that there's some information missing on, but we've, we've got an original one of those. Um, but everything, all the other bits and pieces that people have been trying to replicate for ages, we found them deep in an archive in commentary. Right. And we're like, this is superb. We're now having to go through it <laughs> and make sure that they didn't supersede it with something else. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, it's been that level of work to try and do it. And what we've done is because we do a, a huge outreach to youngsters um, to try and get them into engineering and learn a bit about the history side as well, is that we've been trying to integrate the work of restoring the aeroplane into existing apprenticeship projects within big industry. Yeah. And that gives them a bit more of a challenge. And if it's even if it's putting stuff onto CAD uh, or it's doing some design analysis or aerodynamic uh, analysis, because no one's flown with these blisters on for ages. Yeah. I don't know if the canopy's going to pant and come off the rails. You know, what else we have to do? So we've run aerodynamic modelling of that to see yeah. how it's going to perform at different speeds. Yeah. Fantastic. The kids love it. It's brilliant for that thing. It's well over my head. I'm a, I, I can't work computers at all. <laughs> Build an aeroplane, yeah. But no, I can't work computers. Yeah. So these kids have really got stuck into it. And it's been a great learning curve for them. It's been a fantastic learning curve for me. But what we've also found at the same time is the answer isn't always computer-aided design and all these CNC machines. Because most of these things were were cast and then just machined off on a little two-axis mill, yeah. effectively. Um, and what we've now looked at is we've gone, well, actually, we can 3D print bits whilst we still can't fit those to the aeroplane, we can make really good sand castings yep. out of these things. So we can do it very quickly. We worked with a wonderful company called Zeiss that came in with their latest all singing or dancing scanning machine that was a normal light source, not a laser light source, just a normal light source. In six and a half minutes, they scanned a load of equipment that we needed to replicate down to five microns accuracy. Wow. And it already, it transposed directly into a 3D printing fire. So literally, if we connected that same computer to a 3D printer, it would scan in six minutes and within a minute of then immediately start printing the, wow. the, the material. So we've been doing that with bits of Spitfire so that we can then make these sand casts and then go, well, actually, let's cast as it probably is because it's, it's getting that feel of it. Mm. You know, you can pick up a bit of aeroplane and go, oh, that's been done. But then you pick up an original one and you go, oh, it's got a certain feel. Mm. And the way it's set. So we've, we've replicated that where yeah. we needed to. So yeah. down to like the rudder trim, that lots of people have been making, they've been machining it. It's all got these really nice little sharp little lines. No, we've cast them again. And it's actually, if you're doing them, enough of them, it actually works out more cost effective than paying somebody to model it, tool up to hold it in the in the machine yeah. and then yeah. create all the holding jigs and everything else. No, just cast it. Yeah. So we've tried to go back to if it was originally cast or forged. Well, certainly with forging on a Spitfire, you have to do it to get the flow lines of the material. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we, we machine where we can and where it's sensible or where we've already got data. Yeah. Or we try and uh, cast it to make it as per original. So yeah. it's been really exciting, really quite stressful at times. It's always a boyhood dream to go and do it, but I really, <laughs> I look at it now and go, I could never do another one. 
that I never could. This is going to take it right out of me. Just managing and trying to bring it together because we're, we're, we're struggling now to get bits. There are less and less original bits that yeah. are serviceable available. Yeah. And um, it, it's, it's, it, it's not going to get any better unless somebody does suddenly find a big stash of things. So we have to start looking at the balance between, you know, most of the stuff that's left is left because it's worn out. Yes. And then how much of that can we replace? What can we do? We're now looking at cylinders, still really expensive. I mean, you think about an undercarriage leg, if you have to hone that out and it's over, say, three, three and a half feet, there aren't that many boring machines that are available that will be accurate enough to hone something that length. Right. So you now people are starting to have a look at trying to make undercarriage legs, but in two parts, and then effectively friction weld them together okay. and finish it off because we don't have the great big masses of industry that we had back then. Yeah. Everything's moved on because it's modernized, yeah. but then you're going, well, how do we solve this problem that was around 80 years ago? Yeah. So it then just creates other little problems for us. Um, and undercarriage legs are going to be, over probably the next four or five years, the big problem in a lot of these restorations because yeah. they are really important, <laughs> but everything that's left is knackered. Yeah, I think out. it's not just Spitfires either. That's a lot of different... I believe they're already having to do it with Hurricanes. I think people are starting to do... I haven't really touched a Hurricane for 20 years, but I believe they're starting to try and make brand new undercarriage main legs yeah. because there just aren't the stocks of yeah. serviceable original ones left. I believe that um, also with P40s, that's one of the sought-after bits to find is it? for a project to use, the undercarriage. Uh, because there's lots of them about, and they're all naked. <laughs> yeah, yeah. well, that's exactly what we're, we're finding with Spitfire stuff. But it's a great challenge. It's a massive learning exercise. Hopefully what we learn out of this, particularly with the restoration, gets passed on more. Because, you know, I've worked, in, I've worked on Spitfire since 20... Uh, no, sorry, 2002, I think yeah. it was the first time I started working on I had a little break for a few years, and then I've been pretty much back on them all the time since about 2013, 2014, okay. so another 10 years in. Um, and we've been very used and very lucky to having boxes of bits whereby, oh, I need this pressure reduction valve, and you go, oh, well, Brian's got loads. And we always used to be able to go to Brian and go, can I have another one? You go, yeah, I've got a box under the bench somewhere with them. You bring it, bring it in, put it on the rig, test it, wonderful, throw it on the aeroplane. In the last few years, you go to people like Brian and go, oh, Brian, you've got any more left? And you go, oh, no, go. Uh, Jim came three years ago and bought everything I had left. And yeah. you go to Jim and you go, how many got left, Jim? You go, oh, I've only got two left. I've got to get rid of them. Yeah. And you go, oh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. oh, I don't know what I'm going to do now. And then these little complicated little valves and fittings and things starting to get to the point of going, hmm. Who made these? Can we get a drawing? Can we get one now that we can actually take apart? Yeah. And, you know, whilst you can take it apart and measure it, you don't know what material it is. We can do tests to get a pretty good idea. Yeah. But what was the process? What was it heat treated to? Yeah. Did they have to do something to it afterwards? How did they make that? Did they have to do something to it first? The process information is gone. And that's where we then have to start involving design offices and the costs start going right up. And uh, sadly, I mean, the, the, the war in Ukraine, as we've seen, has pushed, uh, there was an awful lot of materials uh, down to aluminium, copper, steel and everything else that was all being relied on coming out of that part of the world. Yeah. So even if it's not in particular that country, just the ability to be able to move stuff yeah. has not only pushed the prices up, it's also pushed the availability right down. Uh, I was getting quotes uh, just recently for um, S154 steel really common steel used throughout the Spitfire, yeah. um, really good steel. Um, 
there is a close American equivalent, but you have to do heat treatments with it. And often if you're using tube sizes, it's not the same as the Spitfire because the Spitfire is really annoying because it's British. <laughs> and whilst I love British engineering, it's a real ass from the fact that it's it's they've gone to minute detail to have that wall thickness different to that wall thickness for the torque of this and that. And you're just yeah. going, oh my God. And the American stuff therefore doesn't work. So you have to hone it and then reheat treat it. So it then starts going, well, we'll do a foundry. Well, we now can't get the stuff of the foundry. And you're then looking and going, okay, we can do this, but it's an eight-month lead time. Yeah. And you're going, oh, you want a small block about the size of a lunchbox to yeah. make some bits. And they go, no, nah, no, nah. eight, nine months, wait. And you're going, oh. So then when you find someone who's got it, they go, oh, I've got some. I now want it a price eight, nine, time, ten times more yeah. than it was three weeks ago. Yeah, exactly. And we are having to do a huge amount where, in particular, for buying bar stock now, I'm often having to buy offcuts and to get four or five items made. I'm often having to get it from four or five different companies okay. who have just got bits and pieces um, left because they're just hanging on to it. Right. Um, and so it, it it's being felt by everybody. Uh, it really is. Yeah. And whilst, don't get me wrong, <laughs> there's a lot of people in very bad ways around the world uh, and with far more higher priorities and importance level things than the impact it's got on this. Um, it is one of the reasons why, whilst we're aiming for the end of next year, it will only take another massive hiccup. Yeah. And suddenly, if we have a shipping container of aluminium that's then delayed for three months rather than one month, yeah. that then starts to make the difference. So yes. things that might be beyond our control will be there. But the plan is to have the aeroplane flying. Um, it's obviously the 80th anniversary of the Great Escape in March of next year. Yeah. Sandy Gunn, um, whilst he had been shot down, captured, taken to Salaglove 3, become a tunneler. Um, I mean, he was one of the earliest prisoners there. He's prisoner number five oh, wow. in the camp, yeah, when it opened. Um, he was a security person, he was a tunneler, and he ended up um, going out. He was the 68th man out of the tunnel. Um, he didn't speak German. Uh, his escape partner, Mike Casey, he didn't speak German either. Yeah. <clears throat> they knew they needed to get to the northern ports to get away. And what he did is he uh, decided to sit... It, it, train travel is going to be the fastest. Yeah. If you want to get away as a prisoner of war, you steal a bike or you get on a train. Yeah. Well, of course, you need to find a bike to steal it and then you're likely to be stopped at bridges and crossroads and everything yeah. else. So your German's got to stand up for it. You're going to go on a train, you've got to buy a ticket, you've got to go through station inspections. German's, German's got to stand up to it. Yeah. He knew he needed to take the train, so instead of riding in the train, he rode underneath the train. Okay. So he sat on the bogies underneath the trains and rode the trains north. Now... We've got some letters that went around from people who met him when he was in the in the um, Gestapo prison. Um, we think he was picked up near um, a place called Bernau, just outside Berlin, on the way to Sassnich. Because if you follow the train lines from Sargon, to get north, you actually have to go to Berlin and then out again. It's really, really horrendous. Yeah. And he did it sitting underneath the trains as a 24-year-old. He was wow. shot down when he was 22. Wow. 24 years old, he's riding these bogeys of these trains and he gets picked up at the marshalling yards and he's sent down to Gorlitz and he's questioned for about two weeks and then he's he's called as part of a group of four and they're taken out and murdered. Wow. And that story really appealed to me and it took a long time for me to try and work out why it really appealed. And it was only when I managed to find some family members and I found his diaries and the diaries came forward and I realised that I'd grown up 
like four miles from RF Benson. And I left home when I was like uh, 18. He came down to RAF Benson when he was 19. Yeah. And he was learning to drive and he just bought his first car and he bought down and he was going to all these pubs that he was writing about in his diary. And I went, I've been to all those pubs. Right. I learned to drive on the same roads. So he and I had both been about the same age in the same area. We were just 40 years apart. Yeah. And it then really clicked that I suddenly thought I'd shared that pub with him, but 40 years later, not knowing he even existed. Yeah. And it's built a connection that's been really quite bizarre. And, you know, I've been to his house where he was born, where he lived. I've been to his schools where he's been taught and they've given me all his records. You can get all his, you can get like his application to the school okay. and all the letters he's written to the headmaster. And they're original. They're, yeah. they're them. And you go to his university and they've got all of the stuff that he had there. And you go, this is bizarre. This is his stuff. Yeah. His nephew's got his log books, his wings. Um, we've got a list of stuff that was sent home from the camp. And there's still a container that the family have that they haven't been through. There's a big wow. like, lockup full of stuff. And we know his pipe came back. Loads of other stuff came back from Saddle We've got photos of girls. We've got letters from people. We've got all of this sort of stuff that we're going, who's this? What's that? And it's just this wonderful thing of research that I'm still yeah. trying to break into. Yeah. And that's why I've not visited where he's buried. Right. Because I feel that if I go, he's on paper at the moment, and I've been to all these places, and the aeroplane's in the workshop, and we've got all of this stuff. We've got the instrument panel that was last seen. It came out the ground. The last person who saw it was him as he jumped out of it. Yeah. We've got bits of the seat that he sat in. You know, We've got bits of the throttle and bits of all the other stuff that you had to put your hands on to, to work. Yeah. And I think whilst you're looking into that and you are trying to find answers it's fine whilst there's still a bit of distance. But I think the moment I go to where he lays in rest now, that suddenly changes. So I will be going, just not yet. Yeah. Because I think at that point, that's when you have to draw a line because it's going to become even more obsessive. <laughs> and so our plan is, is we, we finish the aeroplane. It's going to do a return flight to Norway. We're going the long way round because there's lots of other countries because of our monument that we'll chat about in a minute. Yeah. Um, there's lots of other countries that want to get involved with what we're doing. Um, and we are going to basically go and fly over where it crashed. We're going to land back in the village so that the, the township had just been over. And they're effectively going to put an airstrip in next to the village. Because when wow. we recovered the aeroplane, we recovered it with the help of the villages and we laid it out in the council building on the stage in the theatre. Yep. So the aeroplane came off the hill to the theatre. We did a bit like an antiques roadshow because people were bringing in stuff that they had. Yeah. And they were going, look, we've got this, and we'd photograph it and they'd take it away again. Or they're going, no, we want this to come back to the wreck and be incorporated back into the wreck. So we did that. Yeah. What we want to now do is return with the aeroplane that flies over and lands back in the village. And then we do the return flight home again. Brilliant. And then it's going to go on a trip. And our plan at the moment is we, we really want to bring it down to Wanaka. There's been some interest from people within New Zealand to see it. Yeah. And there's obviously a great New Zealand link with the PIU, which we'll cover in a minute. Yeah. Um, so our plan is to bring it down to you guys. Uh, have a little play down there because it'd be wonderful to bring the aeroplane down. And then we're looking to ship it to the west coast of America and then go across America uh, with it, try and take in Oshkosh as well if yep. we can, and then we'll ship it home from uh, Boston, New York, that sort of side, right, right. back into the UK, um, and awesome. uh, enjoy it from there. So that's that's the plan with Sandy Spitfire. That's a brilliant plan. I love it. I love the story. I didn't really know anything about it. I had heard of it, but I hadn't 
gone any further. And so I'm just quite overwhelmed. It's amazing. Well, this is why I'm really keen to to chat to you about this because the the monument side of things is really important. What's really important about this, and it's something that struck me and that I hadn't quite realised or appreciated, was that when we announced this, it went global straight away. We actually had TVNZ come to see us. Okay. Uh, oh, I've forgotten her name. She was lovely. Joy Reed, I think. I'm not sure if she's a presenter anymore because it's, it's quite a number of years ago. It's yeah. five, six years ago. She was a foreign correspondent based in London at the time. Yeah. And uh, she came over and she was like, you're going to rebuild this? And I was like, yeah. Yeah, I was, we were standing in a hangar with it all laid out on the floor. And she's like, you're crazy. And it's like, no, <laughs> this is great. Um, anyway, the story all came out and we, we went across America as well. And I think you know, New York Times picked up on it and we had it in lots of press. And then people were emailing going, oh, crikey, do you know about this? Or, you know, oh, dad spoke about this or great uncle Steve spoke about this. And you go, okay, um, tell me about it. And more people kept sending the stories in, and I thought, ah, oh, because there were some really interesting people who flew 810. I mean, we had conscientious objectors. So this, just this one aeroplane, and this is what I was saying about the story of yeah. telling the story of the Royal Air Force, yeah. is that in this one aeroplane, we had a conscientious objector who had been at Dunkirk in the army. Yeah. He'd been evacuated of it, and having been evacuated and seen what had gone on in the British Expeditionary Force, he went, I'm not having anything to do with killing anyone anymore. Yeah. But he retrained and transferred to the Royal Air Force. And then he said, I'm going to go in to do something that I can still do my part, but I don't want to get involved with killing anyone. Right. So they put him in an armed reconnaissance. Interesting. Now, interestingly, he was on leave in Glasgow, because he came from Glasgow. Yeah. And he was in leave on 10th of May 1941, when he was standing in the garden and went, that's a German aeroplane flying over the top of Glasgow. Legged it down the road because he saw the guy bailed out. And he was one of the team who captured Rudolf Hess. In fact, he gave Rudolf Hess his pen. Wow. to sign his name wow. as part of the capturing team. A year to the day after capturing Rudolf Hess, he was shot down outside of Trondheim um, in his Spitfire and in such poor weather that no one knew that they'd actually shot him down. Um, and it was only two weeks later when the weather cleared and they looked up to the mountain at Forbords Fell um, and saw this big stain across the snow and went up there and Freddie was still sat in his Spitfire from where he'd been shot down two weeks ago. Wow. And that was a year to the day after he had been part of the team capturing Rudolf Hess. Yeah. We then had another young man called Mervyn Jones, who was a stable hand from Wales, who um, had volunteered for the Royal Air Force Reserves, been called up, training to be a pilot, still looking after Lord Stalbridge's horses, the Grand Nationals coming up, the jockey who was supposed to uh, run uh, fell, broke his leg, couldn't run. They said, well, the horse has entered, you know the horse go run the race, and he won the Grand National in front of the King in 1940, wow. odds of 25 to 1. He was the first person to fly 810 operationally. He did the first two missions in it. Okay. He only did 17 missions before he was shot down over Tirpitz, parachuted out into the fjord, and by the time the German uh, launch had got to him to pick him up, he disappeared below the waves. So he is still missing to this day. Wow. We had a guy called uh, Robert Tomlinson, who came all the way. And in fact, his family are in New Zealand now. Okay. Um, but he was South African. Um, and he'd come across at the start of the war for a holiday, seen what was going on, joined up, went into Bomber Command. Bomber Command weren't doing very much in the phony war. Got really fed up, transferred into um, photo reconnaissance. Uh, he flew the aeroplane many times, many, many times. Um, he took off 
uh, on the um, 18th of March 1942 to go to Bergen, and he was due back. There is some debate as to what happened. There are reports to say that the radar didn't pick up any returning dots coming from that way. There are other reports to hear that in such bad weather, they heard an aeroplane engine pass over the top of Wick in Scotland and carry on out into the Atlantic. All right. And that he missed the country completely. Because coming back from Norway, I mean, you've got one of these awful little P8 compasses. Now, if you're coming back from Trondheim to Wick, if you go seven degrees too far to the left, you fly all the way down the North Sea and you never see the UK out to your right. Wow. If you fly seven degrees to the right, you completely miss the Shetland Islands and you keep on going out into the Atlantic. You had a 14-degree cone to come in to stand any chance of seeing the UK, and you are right on the limit of your fuel. Most of them landed back at Wick, which is John O'Groach, right at the very top yeah. of Scotland. I mean, we had some row as well up in the Shetland Islands, which is a little bit better, but you had to sh- hit the Shetland Islands rather than the big mass of Scotland. Yeah. But most of them landed with between 10 and 15 minutes of fuel left. Gosh. That's how marginal it was. And that's why of all the guys that flew it, the majority of them that were killed were killed within a two-month period in the early part of 1942, flying from Scotland, trying to keep an eye on Tirpitz. And that's where it really started to hit home. There was a young guy called AFP Fame. If anyone's into their Formula One or motor racing or Grand Prix, he was a pre-war household name when it came to motorsport. He was winning at Chelsea Walsh. He was racing at Le Mans for BMW. He he won the Mille Mille. He... um, it was a hill climb. He owned part of Fraser Nash. So he was developing all these single-seat chain-drive racing cars for Fraser Nash. Yeah. Um, he was of Armenian descent. Right. Uh, but an older guy. Well, I say older. I think he was 28 when war broke out. You know, right. it's hardly old. Yeah. Um, but too old for frontline service. Now, he was also the Messerschmitt agent for the UK. Okay. He had so many contacts. He was at von Ribbentrop's wedding in London wow. because of his political contacts that he had within Germany for business purposes. Um, he ended up being an instructor at Booker, uh, which is High Wycombe, just outside London. Um, various things happened within his life, um, so it, he then really did push to go front line. Um, being a bit old for fighter command, as they so thought, put him into photo reconnaissance. Um, he flew 810 on a number of times, including two uh, Tirpitz, where he took ground fire from Tirpitz. He was the guy who had found Tirpitz originally back in January of uh, 42. Okay. He's also the guy that took that amazing low level photograph, you know, where it's banked against the hill and it's the rear deck taken from about 50 feet. That was Fane who took that about oh. a month after 810 was shot down. Okay. Um, you know, fabulous chap. He was killed coming back from Flensburg, the U boat pens at Flensburg, in appalling weather just outside Duxford, trying to navigate his way back uh, into there. At flying low enough that his wingtip caught a hedge. Oh, hell. And cartwheeled him into the ground. Gosh. So these guys were returning in horrendous weather to try and get this information. Because when you think about it, and this is why we feel that this is important. Yeah. Of all the guys that flew 810, the only ones that survived were Jeffrey Quill, who had test flown it. Yeah. Because he flew on his first flight. A guy called Edward Lee, who... Um, Incredible chap, actually survived the entire war, uh, flying photo reconnaissance. Uh, did go into training quite a bit in the middle, um, but became a, a good old hand to be able to advise other people on how to do it. Yeah. Uh, and a guy called Guy Morgan, who uh, flew 810 the most. Um, he also flew some development flights in 810, which we think were for developing the new gearboxes. The, the gearboxes on the cameras were really poor at the start. Yeah. 
they were obviously trying to do the uh, Würzburg radar mission to capture the low level, which involved flying very fast past a highly defended area, which meant that that camera had to take photos very, very quickly out the side of the aeroplane. Yeah. We're going through the notes now, but it looks like RB Jones was developing a new gearbox for, or decreed, develop a gearbox farmer that will capture this Würzburg radar yeah. on a fast pass. He goes to Benson uh, in the end of 1941, Guy Morgan takes 810 to there the same day that RB Jones is there. He then flies all the way to Wick in Scotland via Yorkshire. He carries out three test flights along the coast in Yorkshire, and RB Jones has left and gone back to London. And then he flies all the way back down to Benson again. And the day he arrives, RB Jones turns up again. So we think 810 was used as part of the development of the new ultra fast gearbox that came in for taking the Würzburg because it was only three weeks later that the Würzburg trip is taken and that iconic photo of that radar sitting outside the house on the cliff top yep, 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 is taken yep. so you know this is the sort of stories we're trying to do guy is fantastic at, at what he does um he ends up being picked up by vickers and becomes vickers test pilot he actually ends up taking over from jeffrey later on as jeffrey's moved on to other things yeah. so he ends up doing all the final testing on the spitfires he actually has the uh, in his logbook, he flew the very last Spitfire off the production line. He okay. carried out its test flight, overflying Mitchell's grave wow. in the very last Spitfire. He then went on to lead the uh, the work on the um, attacker and scimitar program, and then he ended up working for uh, on the like, the Viking, I think, because Viking, I think, was the last thing he was involved with. Yeah. Um, so he survived the war, but indicative of it, so many of them didn't, and their stories are really tragic. And all the guys that came to replace them, you start to look at some of them that were lost. And some of them were lost on the first flight. Some of them were lost, you know, after many flights. There was one poor guy who he did a whole, I think, three years on the PRU, transferred away to bombers, did two trips on bombers, came back, they gave him a desk job. And in early 1945, went, no, I want to get back into it again. So he gets current again on mosquitoes, second trip out on PRU, he's lost, killed. And we've had another young man, who had an absolutely incredible, heroic uh, second mission. So he was flying a Mosquito in uh, late 1944, down to the south of France. He's at high altitude. He's attacked by uh, one of the Messerschmitt 163 rocket fighters at high altitude. He takes this Mosquito, he rolls it upside down and dives it vertically, well past V&E, yeah. to try and escape the 163s. He doesn't escape the 163s pulls out at low level, they're still behind him, they get a load of rounds into him that knock out the starboard engine. He then flies into cloud on one engine at low level to try and escape. Yeah. Gets halfway through France, breaks out of cloud, is picked up by a 109 who kills the navigator sitting next to him and knocks out most of the systems for the right-hand side of the aeroplane. Yeah. He then carries on again to get to, uh, I think it's Amiens, that he gets, where at which point the Americans have advanced past, he belly lands the Mosquito at Amiens with a dead navigator and a shot up engine and without going to put the gear down and he wins the instantaneous DFC wow. on his second mission. Wow. They recover the cameras, they recover the information, they recover the intelligence. They send him back to Benson, they give him three days off, he's killed on takeoff on his third mission. Oh, and you're going, and this was you know, end of 1944, it's on the wind down of things and it's all these stories that you get because all these families were coming to me and they were saying, oh, I want to talk about dad, brother, uncle, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, 
let's tell their story. And I looked at PR and I thought, well, it had an effect in everything. You know, these guys took 26 million photos throughout what? That's just REF photos. So that's not the photo recon unit of the USAAF. Yeah, yeah. That's not the Australians when they eventually got their act together and got their own reconnaissance, which yeah. was actually quite late, yeah. quite late. Um, 26 million photos. Amazing. And that means that every part of the war, be it Operation Sea Lion and seeing what was going to happen, to, or even if you go back earlier, the operations of 212 Squadron and the PDU, which was the advance of Germany. I mean, we forget, you know, Dunkirk evacuation is end of May 1940. The PDU didn't actually evacuate finally from France until July. Okay. So nearly two months after the British Expeditionary Force have left from Dunkirk. And of course, they were then still trying to filter down through France, because of course, the Germans were advancing toward Paris and then pushing south and then having all their chats with the Vichy government, etc. And there were people trying to get out of Marseille and everywhere. The PDU is still operating, flying, watching the advance. They screw yeah. up because they end up getting so far to France, I think they have to leave a, um, a Spitfire in Reims that's gone tech and the Germans capture it. But they end up having to just get into Jersey to get fuel, to then get back out and get back to the UK. Wow. So they kept on operating all this time. So every single day, and I had this wonderful statistic, <laughs> which is that the aeroplane that was in flight on the day that, so September 3rd, 39, when we declared war, was a photo reconnaissance aeroplane. Okay. And the RAF aeroplane that was operating at the moment that Japan signed the armistice was a photo reconnaissance aeroplane. And it covered every aspect in between from France, Germany, Scandinavia, Africa, Mediterranean, Middle East, Far East, Burma, Japan, everything, reconnaissance across every single aspect that you can imagine in the war. There was somebody flying an unarmed aeroplane, taking a picture of what was going on. Dam Busters raid, Arnhem, the glider assault for D-Day, the D-Day yeah. beaches themselves. Yep. Everything that went on was mapped by reconnaissance. And not just to get the information on what was going on with the, the Axis powers, it's where you got your weather info from. Yes. You couldn't phone up the Germans and go, can you tell me if it's a bit cloudy <laughs> over like yeah. um, Warsaw? You know, it's not going to happen. But when they're up there, they can make observations. They have temperature gauges within the aeroplane. There's two temperature gauges in the PR4, mostly so you can see about the condensation level because you've got a rear view mirror fit inside the blister to see if you exhaust some amazing contrails because that's going to show you up. Right. But obviously that gives you your... Um, Condensation there, altitude, and the temperature. Yep. Write it all down, give it to the Met guy when you get home as part of your report, and goes, ah, oh, there's a low pressure coming, or a high pressure coming, all or right. this has been observed. That's how you get your long range weather. Okay. And then you think about all the stuff that you did even with Bomber Command. If it's not just for operations on the ground, yeah. if you've got a high profile target, so let's say like um, the Renault factory or something like that, right? And you need to go and bomb it. So you go and bomb it, and then you need to know, well, have I actually hit it? So you've got to send someone else over yep. to go and have a look. So the Germans also know if it's just been bombed, someone's likely to come over and take a photo of it. Yep. If you manage to shoot that person down, you as the Germans know that they still need the photo, so someone else is coming. And that's where we get the high rate of attrition. Right. To the point where, and there's, uh, there's a few accounts that we've had of people who went over with, uh, with the bombers. So the Spitfire or Mosquito would go in 15 minutes before the bomber stream plaster it with photos, pull away, sit in orbit in the area whilst the bomber stream comes through, yeah. then wait for all of the smoke and everything else to clear 
to then go and take photos because they needed to know whether they had to go back again and hit it that night wow. or go back and hit it the next day. Yeah. And that's why you have huge rates of attrition. Yeah, gosh. But no one knew what the huge rates were. There was all these sort of numbers going, oh, well, we think it's about this. Or we think it's about that. And I thought, well, this is a story that needs to be told. No one's really told it. And no one really has any figures. And this is where it gets incredibly embarrassing from a military point of view for us. Because I went to our air historical branch and I said, hello, <laughs> could you tell me what the role of honor is for all these different RAF squadrons who flew? Because we also had tactical reconnaissance, obviously. Yeah. We're looking at the purely unarmed and it had to be the, the purpose of that squadron. Yeah. There were some squadrons who only did it for a few months whilst they were re-equipping with other things. But it had to be the main focus of that squadron was unarmed reconnaissance, yeah. of which there's about 11 or 12 squadrons. Okay. And they went, we can't tell you. And I was like, why? They said, well, no one's looked it up. Go to uh, the personnel, the RF disclosures team at Cranwell. Okay. So I phoned them up and they said, hello. What are you after? I said, hi, <laughs> can I have a list of all the people who flew in these different squadrons? And they went, no, uh, we haven't got it. No one's asked for it. Oh, and I said, all oh, right. And they said, look, if you manage to get permission, fill your boots because we have one and a quarter million records on microfiche that are in surname order, but have no other details on it other than the surname order. You need to tell us which names, and then we can tell you which record. Okay. And I mean, I haven't, I haven't got that. And they said, we can't do it then. Oh. Which, I'm an engineer, so I treat things black and white. Yeah. You either can or you can't do it. And I'm going, this is not possible. You can't be telling me that it's not possible to do this. So back in the early part of 2019... I thought, well, the operational record books for these squadrons largely exist. There's a few ones that are missing, particularly in the early part of the war. Yeah. However, there was a master book that existed for the, the, for, for the PRU. And the adjutant for the, the unit actually was pretty good on that master book. So a lot of the ORBs, the operational record books, have great flight detail. But the master book, whilst it misses that detail, it will tell you a name, an aeroplane, and a date, and okay. where it was going. Yep. So I sat down at the start of 2019 with a list of squadrons and the list of the ORBs and my log on to get onto uh, the National Archives at Kew. Um, and I started 3rd of September 1939 on the first squadron. And I wrote down every single name of every single person who flew for that unit for every day of the war. Yeah. And then went on to the next squadron and the next squadron, and the next squadron. And then I managed to get a few people to help me, because it's quite depressing when you're doing all of this, yeah. and you see, did not return, or failed to return. Yeah. And you start going, oh, blimey. And there have been some fantastic people, uh, at least five, who have put huge amounts of work into helping me, where they've taken ORBs and go, we'll do that squadron, we'll do that squadron, okay. everything else. Yeah. But often that only gives you a surname, maybe some initials, and the rank at the time. Yeah. No other information. So then you have to start going to the squadron diaries for what was going on on the base to see, oh, I can tie up. There's that name of that person arriving. Yeah. That yeah. rank ties up. Yeah. There's a service number, all of that sort of thing. Yeah. It's a good job I like engineering and working through things methodically because as of today, I've found 1,536 different individuals. Wow. We have completely identified all bar 298 okay. of those individuals. Okay. Where we have, so the, the ones that we haven't found, we know that they exist. 
Um, they either question marks because they could be a derivative of a spelling of something else. Because we're obviously having to write. They're not typed. Yes. They're handwritten yeah, yeah. in beautiful 1930s and 40s English scroll. Okay, yeah, yeah, <laughs> So yeah. when you've looked at these for hours on end, you're like, uh, is that a P or an L <laughs> yeah. or a J or a G? Uh, I'm not quite sure. Um, or we're missing information like we might have no initials. We might have an rank and, and a surname. Yeah. Or as we have with some things, we often have found squadron photos whereby, you know, there's a, a thing that's written on it, smidge, titch, wally and winky. And you're like, great, that's, <laughs> that's brilliant. Really <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How am I going to tie that in? <laughs> um, however, are those 1,536 of which we're missing 298? I've done just over 1,100 personal histories okay. where I've managed to find who they are where they were born, what happened to them, and where they went. Wow. That's, that's a lot of work. It's been a huge amount of work. But what it does tell us is that we have by far the most diverse set of people within the Royal Air Force going. We have 23 different nationalities okay. who flew, including some really interesting ones, because we have 11 Americans who flew all before December 1941. Right, And the thinking being, because everyone's heard about the Eagle Squadron, yep. and they go, wonderful, all these people like Billy Fisk and all this sort of stuff have come over. We know all of these wonderful stories. But yep. There's 11 guys who wanted to come and fight, and they went, we're not in this war. We're not going fighting. So they put them in the reconnaissance because it was basically seen as non-competitive because right. right. they weren't armed. Yeah, 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 yeah. Seven of those 11 were killed before America entered the war. Wow. And that, to me, is fascinating. Then we look at all the other ones. We've got a Ukrainian in there who came across and flew. Yeah. We've got a Fijian that came across and flew. We've got people from Trinidad and Tobago and Jamaica and obviously the normal Commonwealth countries yeah, that yeah. we're all used to. But we've got a Swede, neutral Sweden, okay. came and flew. Yeah. And you're going, this is really fantastic. 23 different nations, including Brazil. Right, okay. And we're like, this is, this is really impressive. Mm. So we started to try and do research into this. And I thought, it's really sad that there is no focal point of information for the Royal Air Force reconnaissance units. And there is a plaque at our National Arboretum to Royal Air Force photographers from all years. But that's strictly photographers. So people who would sit in the camera in the back or would sit in a Boston with a handheld thing yeah. and go click, click. But they haven't done any names. It's just a plaque saying that people did take photos, but it doesn't recognise the air crew. And it doesn't recognise the photographic interpreters because it's all very well taking 26 million photos, right? But unless you can look at it and go, what's that? Yeah. Or what's that? It doesn't yeah. mean anything. Yeah. So all these discoveries like the V1 programme and Pinamunda and the V2s all had to be looked at by somebody and it had to be worked out and okay. they were mostly little girls working at uh, Medmenham or at Newnham Park or Huendon Manor who then took all of this and because it was stereoscoped so two photos together overlapped if you looked through it through glasses similar to how your eyes work we all see in stereoscope we see depth because yeah. we've got two eyes and they're slightly apart yeah. well it's the same process two cameras looking vertically down slightly apart slightly overlapped, look at it through two lenses that look directly at each one, and it becomes a 3D image. Right. And if you know the time of day and 
what the sun's doing for the time of year, you can then use the shadows because they're all done in black and white for that exact reason. You use the shadows to measure the height of things. Right. So you can see if things are getting built because the shadows are getting bigger. Yeah, yeah. Or it's yeah. getting larger. So the amount of information you do, and it was all being picked up by about 700 people working in these stately homes. But even they're fascinating. Dirk Bogart was a photographic interpreter for the Royal Air Force during the war. Okay. Sarah Churchill, Winston Churchill's daughter, was a photographic interpreter for the uh, uh, Medvenum. Yeah. Um, the lead cartoonist for Disney was a photographic interpreter. Wow. And in fact, he did cartoons for each department at Medvenum. So he's got like Donald Duck flying over an airfield looking down because that was the team that specifically looked at Luftwaffe. Right. And right. you get on all these, um, Helena Bonham Carter's aunt, Lady Charlotte Bonham Carter, so one of the highest aristocracy at the time in the UK, was a photographic interpreter okay. looking at airfields and what yeah. was going on. And that information was real time. If you had an SOE agent and you dropped them behind the lines, they're going to be able to work in their immediate local area. Oh. And they can, if they're not compromised, hopefully at some point get a radio message out or something to let people know what was going on. Yep. Bletchley Park, break the Enigma code. Fantastic. But there's such a volume of stuff coming through. It takes three days to interpret it. So yep. unless the Germans go, in four days' time, I'm going to do this. Yep. It's reactive. Yep. Photo reconnaissance could go and take 300 miles of coastline at 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock in the morning in the summer land back by half past 11, it's developed by half past 12, 1 o'clock, and it's at the, the, the cabinet war rooms under the treasury with the admiralty by 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Right. Real time, yeah. this is what is going on intelligence. And that's why it's really important. All of this stuff fed back to the cabinet war rooms underneath the treasury to give that, that wonderful map wall that everyone sees in there, the information that's being plotted on there, yeah. ship movements, troop movements, everything else has all come from a mixture of photo reconnaissance Bletchley stuff from Enigma and SOE feedback. And that's why it's, it had a part of every single thing. It shaped how the war happened and no one's been recognised. Right. And no one had recognised the names of these people. And I thought, we need a national monument. Yep. So we have been campaigning since the end of 2019. And of course, COVID knocked it right on its arse for of course, years. Yeah. Um, but we managed to get back on track in Remembrance Week of 2021. We have had a huge amount of political support because obviously we want it a national monument so it has to be recognised by the government. We're trying to work very hard with the government. We have recognised a site in central London which is very relevant to where the information was used as to where we would like to put this monument. Yep. And in particular, we want to recognise the fact that um, there were people who, on the ground who interpreted this information, that there were people in the air who flew unarmed to gather this information that there were a huge number of losses and some of the stories behind it. We've also got a really fantastic idea to make it a groundbreaking, um, I don't want people to be scared if I say interactive, but we've got this plan and I'm not gonna spill the beans now because it's, it's wonderful, I'm really excited about it. But if, if we do this, this is gonna be the memorial that everyone will look at and go, that is fantastic. We need to see that. It's not been done anywhere else in the world. Okay. And it, it was thought up the other day over beer. And where I'm a strong believer that if you come up with an idea with a beer in your hand, it has to work 
with a beer in your hand and it has to work the next morning when you wake up yep. and you haven't got a beer in your hand and if it still makes perfect sense it's a good idea that's worth looking at yep. so that's that's what we've done and uh, we're working very hard with some very good people and architects and tech people um, to try and make this happen which would be fantastic but the important thing is, is that we went to embassies and high commissions of all of these different countries who had representatives there to get their backing and as you would expect in a Royal Air Force unit number one it's the UK we had the most number of people in there but New Zealand comes in at fourth okay for numbers of people that were okay. actually there really? and I'm afraid I do have to refer to my notes slightly <laughs> because right. I have so much going on in my head that I have to try and remember a lot of this but um New Zealand provided 44 wow. personnel into the Royal Air Force uh, unarmed reconnaissance units, uh, either via other um, uh, units beforehand or predominantly just into that. Yeah. Of those 44, 24 were casualties. Ooh, and that breaks down into 11 that uh, we know where they are. Yeah. And sadly, most of those 11 that we know where they are is because they were either killed in training or they were killed on return to the UK in either highly damaged aeroplanes or in takeoff accidents. Right. Um, there are eight missing in action. And there were five that were prisoners of war. Okay. What we also have to not forget <laughs> is we have drawn a line effectively at VJ Day 1945. But there are a lot of people all around the world still. There's one New Zealander that's killed just a few weeks after the war is finished, right. bringing an aeroplane home from the Far East. We also there's another gentleman who was killed taking an aeroplane out to the Far East because that's where he's posting it. And this is what's really sad because in these cases, because it's non-operational and they haven't joined their squadron yet, they often don't appear in the books. So they're listed as a missing in action and they're listed in some cases on the Bunny Me Memorial for the missing RAF aircrew yeah. because they weren't actually attached to a squadron time. They come out of training, post a Benson, brilliant. What are you doing here, son? You need to get to Cairo because you're going on to Dum Dum in India, yeah. Calcutta or somewhere like that. Oh, okay, boss. Yes, boss. Thanks very much. Head down to Gibraltar. They then head out. They never, they never arrive at the next destination. Yeah. They're not attached to a unit. No one's effectively missing them. Often it took months to get out to some of these, these places. And in particular, it'd just be like, oh, we're being sent some replacements. Wonderful. Some turn up, some don't. Yeah. And that's what seems to get really tragic as well. But there are a few individuals that we're really trying to focus on. We don't want to basically put some people up in front of others. Yeah. But what we're trying to do, because we have so many nations, we're trying to appeal in each of those nations to say, look, we really want to get behind this. Yeah. What my ultimate aim is, we're going to have a big press event over here soon. Um, and we've got foreign representatives from all the major national news outlets for every single one of these 23 countries. Yeah. And we're going to push it out within newspapers and TV channels within each country. I'd love to get to the point that I can raise a thousand pounds for each person who served okay. from that particular country. Yeah. So we want to try and raise 44,000 pounds in the entirety of New Zealand. I really hope we can do that. <laughs> We've got to raise 11,000 pounds in America. I really hope we're going to do that, but it means I've got to raise three quarters of a million over here. Yeah. And actually, if we manage to do that, uh, or even get close, that largely covers the cost of erecting this monument in central London okay. for the RAF uh, yeah, units. Yeah. Um, but so we, we look at a few 
individuals because there are some fascinating stories that bring bring it really home that the fact that whilst these guys served in justice unit they were people who went and did lots and lots of things yes. um if i was to say uh, squadron leader leonard ernley clark now some people might know of ernley clark because he was the second person to fly uk to New Zealand, right in a Percival Gull, yep, yep. and I think he was—he had a huge amount to do with early aviation, particularly around in into war period down there, because he was—he yes. um, came from uh, Christchurch area, yep. um, and he learned to fly at the Canterbury Aero Club in in the early nineteen thirties. But he brought a lot of aeroplanes in later. Now he he actually he he survived the war. Um, he started right at the start. He'd been <laughs> he'd actually been. I think the story goes that. His his mother had been widowed. His father had passed away. His brother was on holiday over in the UK. He had learnt to fly before, got to the UK, bought an aeroplane and decided to fly home. Yeah. Uh, and that was at the same time, was it Jean Batten? Jean Batten. Jean Batten, that's it. Oh, God, I'm testing my knowledge here. Um, she was planning exactly the same because I think they were only weeks apart. Yes. So they weren't talking to each other. Right. And, of course, Ernley came back across and didn't really want the, the exposure to it all. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and I believe I've got photos of him because his name comes up quite early at Benson. I think he flew the Minister for Aviation Production at Benson in the prototype Mosquito because oh, of course really? the prototype Mosquito was intended and first went on operations in photo reconnaissance. Okay. And I've got some lovely photos of this. So you know, these are the things that we want to try and really um, sort of focus in on. But you know, he's he survived the war. Yep. Um, he didn't live until I think he lived into sort of the late sixties. Right. Um, but then. We, we have all these weird and interesting stories. We've got uh, Harry Coldbeck, who uh, was also Christchurch, um, and he flew a huge amount of missions out of Malta, okay. um, mostly photographing Italy and the Mediterranean, because, of course, it was a really punchy area. Yeah. Everyone was fighting over Crete and Libya and Tobruk and all this sort of thing. Um, he ended up, he was, he was hit by anti-aircraft fire, and the report states that he was basically flying on the aeroplane, took a direct hit, which blew him out of the aeroplane. He was still, it basically disintegrated the aeroplane around him. He was not hurt. But in the next thing, he was flying in the aeroplane. And the next thing, he sat outside the aeroplane wow. in thin air. Oh. And he managed to parachute out. It's like breath. a cartoon. It is. <laughs> um, and, but he only died in the late 1990s. Okay. So he still returned to New Zealand afterwards. I, I think he wrote a book. He might have done. And oh, see, this name is rings a bell. It's trying to find this, because a lot of these things are often published within country. Yeah. And this is where I'm desperate for the information. I'm desperate to try and get hold of it. We are in contact with some families of some individuals within New Zealand. And I'm really hoping that through this podcast, through press pieces that we can do out there, yeah. we can actually get to hear from a lot of these other individuals. Yeah. There's a poor chap... Um, and it's very, very relevant because it had major impact in the war. A guy called Robert Turton. Um, I'm not going to try and pronounce where he came from <laughs> within it. Uh, is it Kakai? K-A-K-A-H-I. You might be able to get that for me. Kakahi, I'd say that would be. Oh, would it? Okay. And then the next one is Tamaranui. Tell me or Nui, I won't try that. <laughs> <laughs> I'll get caught up on that. Um, he was actually, uh, he it, suddenly, he was a fatality through the structural failure of a mosquito. Okay. Now, you might have seen reports that when they sent the mosquitoes out to Burma, they really suffered in the humidity. Yes, yes. And it caused yes. mostly. The, the accident that caused the grounding of the mosquitoes 
whilst they looked at the glue issues with it, was down to him because he was on a mission and they saw the aeroplane break up okay. uh, in flight, which, which led to this glue failure, which, which sadly killed him. Yeah. Um, and, you know, he was only a young, young man. He was 22 yeah. and he'd done 11 days on the unit. Oh, wow. So he had arrived out there and was with the squadron for 11 days and his aeroplane had structural failure around him. They probably and, gave him the old aircraft on the squadron too. Who knows? But yeah, and this is this is the sort of range of stories we get. They are largely depressing because of the huge amounts of casualties that are there. But if we don't look at uh, of all these ones, uh, then we don't know about it. I mean, the guys, as I said, the um, the the ferrying of the aeroplane was a guy called Donald Hardman from Dunedin. Yeah, that was was sent down there. Go to there. You're going to Burma. Never turns up. Crew member never seen again. That's it. Don't know where they are. Don't know where the aeroplane is. It has never turned up. Right. But unless we remember that and, and research it and find out, then we don't know about them at all. But there are ones that survive, obviously. Yeah, so yeah. Um, there's a guy called James Hickey, um, and he served with 681 out in the Far East. Um, now, his son is apparently fairly well known yeah, so as a TV there. person. Was he a weatherman? weatherman I think, yeah. Yeah. I'm desperately trying to get hold of him. Um, okay. I've got a way to him, potentially. Um, but... You know, he, he his father, he's one of several sons, yeah. but his father flew photo reconnaissance for the entire latter part of the war right. uh, and survived. And I would love to find out more because I've got very little information on his father. Right. Well, um, yeah, I've actually seen him and his father on television talking about the war a long time ago when his dad was still alive. Yeah, well, I don't believe his father passed away that long ago either. No, within the last sort of 10 years. Or yeah, so, yeah, I would say. And this is this is, for me the strongest thing because if I'd done this project five years ago there would have been people around who had flown yeah. at the same time as Sandy Gunn if I'd done it ten years ago there were people around who were in the same hut as him yeah. and in fact I bought my cottage I live in a little village at the bottom of the South Downs in Sussex and there's a Royal Air Force old people's home there right. I bought my cottage and lived in it for two years 200 yards from one of Sandy Gunn's roommates in San, at Stalagla 3. Wow. Well, I knew nothing about him. Oh, wow. And therefore would not have known about it. And we've been researching, researching. We've got four veterans alive today that we've found. There's a possible one in Australia. Okay. But only because we haven't actually found an account, an obituary or, or an account of death. So we're hoping he might still be alive. Okay. But um, we think largely the rest are gone. And, you know, our youngest veteran now is going to be 100 in a few months' time. Our oldest veteran is just coming up to 103. Right. And, you know, gleaming this information now is really important. And equally, whilst there are still direct family links, we have an archive. We started a photo reconnaissance archive specifically for photo reconnaissance material because so many people going, no one seems to know about it. Big museums don't want it. It's not really relevant. Um, We'll just chuck it in the bin. And we're going, whoa, no, <laughs> no, yeah. no, no, no. At least let us scan it, copy it, photograph it, find out what's there. I was sitting with a wonderful family recently and the guy had, for some reason, collected every single pamphlet on every theatre uh, event that they had done at RAF Benson. But what it meant is he had all the cast listings and there's a cast photo. And suddenly I'm sitting there going... I'm filling out the names that I've only got surnames right. for and I've got a photo of the person and then you tie it up with the things you go oh look at that there and then you can date it because they've got the DFC or whatever yeah. and you go oh this is fantastic every single bit of information no matter how mundane 
because we've ended up living this for so many years yeah, now, yeah. we look at it and go, that's the info I'm missing. And some people have come to us going, oh, well, this isn't really relevant. No, it really actually is. Yeah. And being able to capture that now around the world. I mean, we've had people say, look, we will pay for you to go to someone who will professionally scan that logbook. Because even down to the movements of this aeroplane, you know, they might have a ferry flight of an aeroplane. I've got four flights missing from 810. They're non-operational flights. But I know that it flew in a, a mission to this place and it landed that airfield. Yeah. And two days later, it took off from another airfield. Well, somebody took it in between. And the person who's flying it on the last mission and the next one is not in their logbook. So yeah. someone else flew it. Yeah. It had a reason to move. And it's going through any of these logbooks for people, particularly who are around Benson area between you know October 1941 and Scotland in March of 1942. Yeah. For me, for 810, fills it in. But there are other aeroplanes and there are other people that we're trying to find info on. Right, right. Um, but, I mean, it doesn't <laughs> it doesn't end there. I mean, there were, there, were, there were a couple of really sad, sad ones. I mean, I mentioned about the chap um, who was killed coming back at the end of the war. Um, but there was another guy who was actually, he, he remained um, in the UK from New Zealand to carry on just doing some testing. He'd been yeah. doing a lot of testing in preparation of aeroplanes. Yeah. Uh, and he had a really unfortunate one. It was in November of 1945 that he took off um, from Shawbrook to go to Benson. He was delivering an aeroplane for the maintenance unit. The right-hand engine caught fire. Now, some of us would have gone, ha, getting out of this. Yeah. No, he managed to get the fire out and thought, right, I'm going to divert. Yeah. So he was going to head back to Shawbrook. Shawbrook had two high crosswinds for him to land on one engine. So he then went all the way up to Harden, up in Flintshire, to try and land there. And that had two high crosswinds. Oh. So then he thought, I'm going to go back and try and do it again. And he went to have an approach um, into another airfield up in the Chester area and lost control putting the flaps in and went straight in. Now, any other of us could have just bailed out of that. But no, he he stuck with it. And that meant he still didn't come home. It's non-operational. And whilst we we include, obviously, his name in the monument because he's there and he'll be down as a survivor, but there are so many individuals that actually still didn't make it back to their their homeland. And I think the real one that uh, struck home for me that I thought was incredibly unfair was the name a guy called James uh, Lavin from Wellington, who went through the entire war in photo reconnaissance and survived all the way through. And if I talk about the Air New Zealand crash in 1979, yeah. the DC-10 going down to yeah. look at the mountains yeah. and everything else, he was a passenger on there. Oh wow! And I thought, how incredibly unfair. And I'm not going to go into the things around that crash because yeah. <laughs> that's I'm not qualified or should in no way pass comment on any of the things yeah. about that but yeah. uh, um, I thought how horrendous that some 30 years after you have a long operational career you're lost as a passenger on a sightseeing flight yeah but I mean it, it is and that's why I think it's really important to tell the story so what I'd really hope from your listeners and from anybody who is uh, involved with aviation or research because I mean I've got to thank I've gone through all this research and I've said this several people so Wing Commander Stephen Thornley who's the the air attaché the New Zealand air attaché yep. to to the UK um, with the High Commission he has been absolutely fantastic with helping with this I've given him loads of names and he's done it but there's also uh, a gentleman by the name of Alex who's uh, an advisor at the Heritage and Protocol Department of the New Zealand Defence Force. Uh, He has been absolutely fantastic within New Zealand, picking up access to records that we've got, because 
by going through a national monument and getting government support for this and by going to the embassies, we've not asked for access to personnel records. Yep. We have strict uh, data protection things here yeah. uh, that are problematic. But what I've been able to do is say, look, I'm specifically after confirmation of individuals and I'm trying to reach out and I'm trying to get as much information as I can from service director. And I'm trying to confirm as well that they were certainly part of these units because I'm going by handwriting here. Yeah. You know, there are a few little changes with things. I want to make sure names are right and that yeah. we miss nobody. Yeah. Um, and that's by... I've done the research, my colleagues have done the research, we put that into these different ones, and particularly Stephen and Alex have been wonderful at going through that data and saying, yes, 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 oh, this one's a possible, we've got him down as maybe being part of that, have a look at that, uh, or actually we haven't got a record of this person because we don't actually have any records on him, um, and that's been wonderful. Our own country, as I said, I'm ashamed at the start because no one has done this, yeah. but we have obviously millions of people here in the Royal Air Force yeah. Um, Czech Republic, Poland. I've often had returns within a week. Canada. It's a bit more tricky because there's, I think there's eighty. Uh, no, it's eighty six for Australia. It's about seventy something, I think, for Canada. It's a lot of people, right. and obviously, I sometimes get the spelling wrong. Different names. Yeah. Uh, we also have the issue that sometimes Americans came and joined the RCAF, yeah. and therefore they don't have many records, but they have a J uh, number for their service number, and it just complicates things. So trying to iron out all these things. The low countries, the invaded countries, we often have people who change their name. Right. So a number of Czechs and Poles and Dutch, Belgians and French were actually flying under different names so that if they were shot down, there was no uh, come back for their families. Back for their families. Yeah. So you can see how it's taken years of research. Yeah, 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 but yeah. what I'd, I'd love to ask is say, look, <clears throat> I really want to get this memorial over the line to all these people. There probably will be more New Zealanders that will come up. As I said, I have 298 that I'm still trying to confirm. And I'm trying to reduce that list down as much as I can. I'm going to go through as much of our records in the UK that I can to discount them as British nationals. And then I'll be going back to all these embassies to say, do you have records of this person? Do you have records of that? If people know or think they know or even have a rumour or itchy feeling that they know somebody who might have been involved with this, please get in touch with us because I can either compare it to our list, it might be someone we've already got. It might not. Yeah. I've got a list on our website. Um, I've got two pages. We've got For Those Who Served, which is our complete published list of people that we know at the moment. And it's literally down to um, names, rank, and uh, in some cases, number, if we've yeah. got it, and their fate. Yeah. But we've also got the monument page. And the monument page is where we detail everything that we're doing. I update it twice a month. Yeah. It talks about where we're at with the monument at that particular time. Um, and people can get in touch with us through that. We're doing a little bit of fundraising at the moment, not a huge amount of fundraising right now because we're we're working really very hard on trying to get the land permissions and the planning permissions and all the ground surveys and getting everything aligned so that we know how we're going to manage this yeah. and particularly manage this around the world. But right now we need information and help honestly if anyone wants to support us i'm not going to turn it down <laughs> but um i need to try and confirm and make sure i've got everybody accounted yeah. for yeah. we obviously design them more in a way we can add names later as things go okay. but i'd really like to be able to capture as many people as i can so if yeah. people have any information 
Um, and I don't know whether we can maybe do something where I can give you a list of all the known New Zealanders that we have and we can put it in a magazine or something somewhere, even as a page of appeal. It's only 44 names. Yeah. But I am hoping to try and get out to families so I can find out who they were, what they were like, what their stories were like, and what was their experience of the war so that I can incorporate that into yeah. my, as I've hinted at, very special monument that will be groundbreaking the stories relating to each name that's on that are very important to me. Right. I don't want to have this old, like a Commonwealth War Grave Cemetery where you go there and there's a, simply a book that says name, age, and where they are on the monument. Yep. The stories of each and every single person who's on that monument are really important. I'll leave it at that. But that is that's where I want to get to. So anybody who's maybe a relative of, knows a relative of, might have a name for us please get in touch okay. and help fill in any information. I've been, a, I've been around aviation all my life. My family have not been involved with it, yeah. but I've loved it. I've been fascinated. I was glued to air shows through the 80s, and you know, I'm not as old as many people in the thing, but you know, certainly from a very young age, through the early 80s, I was all at air shows, museums. My parents couldn't keep me away from it. Every bit of book that I could read, every magazine I could get, I would get or read through or borrow or whatever. But things are changing. I mean, no disservice to any museums out there, but days of looking at black and white photos on a wall to tell a story are coming to an end. Yeah. I have a policy that in any book that I write, and I'm fortunate I've written quite a number of books on aviation, I will always include black and white photos because I feel you can pick up some wonderful detail as a historical item to tell a story. I go into schools and talk to kids a lot. We've reached just over 300,000 kids this year, in the first six months of this year, under the age of 24, telling them about opportunities in aerospace and engineering and history and, and how this all came about. But we go in with colorized black and white photos. Yep. And they're very professionally done. They're not done by a computer and they are done by hand by an individual who will individually color every photo and bring that photo to life because we have to be able to tell a story to the next generation. Yeah. And therefore, I'm trying to get something that is living and engaging and not static. Yes. And that's why people say to me, is the aeroplane the, the memorial? And you go, no, of course it's not. It's, of course it's not because the problem with that is that people have to be able to go and get there and see it. Mm. And if they can't get into it, yes, we can expose to people, but then it becomes down to those fortunate people who are able to go to an air show or can go to the museum that it might live in or can go to one of the countries we're going to visit. And we're going to try and take it as many places as possible. Yeah. But that doesn't get to everybody. And by having the suitable information recorded and being able to get that information and communicate it in a efficient and effective manner that sticks with people has much more grounding than dragging out 10, 11, 12-year-olds to a museum and says, look at this, and they're bored within six minutes. They want to know where the cafe is and where, yeah. where the climbing frame is. Yeah. And you've got to try and capture this in. And we're trying to do as much as we can with modern tech and all these ideas that are out there to go, have we thought of doing this? And that's why we have teachers involved in what we do. We work very closely with schools. We look at the educational programs. We go, how can we take this information and make it relevant to today? Right. And yeah. that, I mean, one of the things we're looking at at the moment is these 3D photos taken during the war. So if I go to a school, and obviously most of the, most of the people when they were learning photo concerts, they practiced over the UK. 
That's why you go on Google Earth and you can set the timer back to 1940 and it's a yeah. mixture of Luftwaffe photos and RAF practice reconnaissance photos. Yeah. But you imagine if I go into a school where most schools now will have access to a 3D printer, right? And I take these two stereographic photos, potentially of their town, yeah. and we can put these together through software, pick it up and create a 3D printing file that we could then give to the school. So almost whilst we're there, if we're there for a day doing a hands-on thing with paper airplanes explaining this, but start the day and say, look, this is what these guys did, blah, blah, blah. And by the end of the day, it's printed a small eight inch by eight inch model of their town wow. in 3D print taken from a wartime photo. That's incredible. That's such an amazing idea. But there's no reason why not. Yeah. Because we were looking through stereographs and getting a 3D image. Yeah. So if we can pixelate that and pick that up on points with software that we use today for tech, and you see it a lot, particularly on like Google Earth, you can do the 3D thing. It's very basic yeah. at the moment, but that's because you're taking it from a satellite at 250,000 feet or something. Yeah. We're now talking about stuff taken at three or 4,000 feet. Yeah. Similar software, let's give that a try, but create it into a, a 3D printing file and get the school technology department to print a nice little model that will sit in their reception yeah. of where their school was. Yeah. That's cool. And that brings it home to kids, the usefulness of this stuff. You know, they look at their cameras with their phones on it that have, you know, pixelated, 4K pixels. And I take in a camera, like an F52 camera that's three and a half foot long on the lens and go, this will take a picture of Big Ben from 50,000 feet over the Isle of Wight. Right. And you'll be able to read the time. And that blows their minds, yeah. utterly blows their minds. You're going, well, this technology is 80 years old. In fact, the F24 camera is 100 years old. Wow. And look at that. And, and you show that there's no point in reinventing the wheel. You, you can show these kids this thing is this. You just need to just finesse it. And technology allows us to finesse it. And that's how we use the past and the spitfire and all the stuff that these kings did to relate it into education today. Yep. And that's why we have so many kids in schools that love what we do. Fantastic. I'm just overwhelmed by hearing all the story. It's fantastic. It's, it's probably really... jet lag as well, Dave. Well, <laughs> You've only been in the country is. a few days. Yeah. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> it probably is, but no, it's just, it's brilliant. It, it really is. And yeah, I just can't wait for it to to come to fruition with the flying aircraft and the memorial and all that. And you have to definitely keep in touch. One thing you said earlier was it'll have working cameras. Yes. Can you still get the film? No. So it'll have digital cameras? No. Oh. We get the film made, Dave. <laughs> if we're going through all this effort yeah. to do it, the film uh, was made by a company uh, who still exists in North London. And um, it was a five inch by five inch uh, yep. wet film, obviously yep. for those that need to know. Um, honest to God, I mean, I've collected together a lot of reconnaissance cameras. I actually have two sitting in my front room at home uh, <laughs> right now that are about to go off. And we've had wonderful help and support from Talis uh, Optronics in particular. So the, the, the camera was originally made by a company called Williamson's. Um, they then subcontracted the work out, particularly during the war, to a company called Vinton. So any of your uh, listeners who have ever worked in the film TV industry will know Vinton as one of the major manufacturers of uh, TV cameras. Okay. Um, but that's based largely upon the work that they did during the war, right. making reconnaissance cameras. Now, post-war, Vinton split into the commercial TV and film industry side and the military optronics side, yeah. which eventually became Talis, which is obviously a global defence manufacturer, right. making not just eyes in the sky for drones and satellites and everything else, but even down to things like periscopes for tanks, submarines, and lots of other things that require sighting gear yep. that they probably can't talk about. Yep. Um, however, 
I took then the challenge of saying, well, I'm interested in information that you might have in your archives. Uh, a rather excellent conversation then continued and they went, well, our apprentices would love this. If you come and bring your cameras to us, we'll put a couple of apprentices on it uh, and we'll see if we can try and get them working. So last September, I took a load of cameras up there and I met a couple of apprentices and a couple of the guys in the, in the laboratory there and they all looked at it and went, this is fascinating. We went, yeah, you guys were making this stuff 100 years ago. Within a month, there were 11 members of staff who had all signed up <laughs> to spend their afternoons and evenings rebuilding these original wartime cameras from the Spitfire. The biggest issue we have actually had, and this comes down to the quality of the item that's produced, because we are talking cameras that are between 80 and 100 years old here, because the early F-24s made in the 20s, they didn't change. They changed the gearboxes on them to update them, and they changed the size of their lenses, but the main bodies and everything else are exactly the same. So in some cases, 100 years old, the rollers within them have a very funny acetate-type material of which there's no real information left as to what it is. Okay. Um, most of that is degraded. So currently, we want three cameras operational within the aeroplane. Certainly two. So we want the two verticals yep. so that it will work. We'd love to have the oblique. Yep. Um, in practical terms, what we might end up doing is putting a small digital camera behind the headset on the left-hand side so we can take pictures <laughs> as we're going along of shows and things. But we want the equipment fit to be exact. I mean, I've got it down to the oxygen system going in. It won't work. Yeah but the oxygen system will be in the aeroplane. And as I said, the flare pistol and the colours for the day and the maps and everything else yeah. will be in the aeroplane. So yeah. the cameras need to be in. And I've collected enough gear. I have the only original set of wooden frames that sit in the back of the fuselage known to exist. Okay. And I've managed to find a set. We've, we've loaned it to some other people who have PR spitfires for them to pattern. <laughs> yeah. But we, we found it in the, the roof, basically the loft, uh, of a guy who was collecting stuff in the 60s and 70s. Okay. And he wow. said, I've got this stuff, and it's the only known example, and we managed to secure it. Wow. So everything will be exact. We won't have the heating system powered up, and also for um, civil aviation uh, reasons, it's not going to be on ship's power. So I'm going to isolate the pilot so that we will have, if we want to use the cameras, we will have a separate power supply right. isolated from ship's power that will be able to power the cameras to use it. I'm yeah. not going to connect it into the into the aeroplane. Okay. Um, but at the moment, out of four cameras, uh, we've managed to get two that will take film and will work. Okay. Um, I've managed to acquire some cameras that were overhauled in 1968, and I found them still sealed in their bag with all the silica um, parts in it and I'm hoping that they will have survived better um, they are about to be transported I'm moving them on Monday yeah. um, to the southernmost depot of Talis uh, near Gatwick um, and we're going to move them up internally within the company to okay. make sure they're protected yeah. and then they're going to carefully unbag them in the laboratory and see if they've actually survived um, if they have then we might be able to use the rollers out of there Okay. Um, but if we're going to that length to get it all to work, I think it's fairly straightforward for me to go to the the, the people who made the film because wet film is coming back. I know right. we all have these yep. big digital cameras and everything else, but there are some people who are going, wet film's pretty cool. Exactly. And I'm thinking there's a fantastic commercial opportunity under advertising here that if they were to make me uh, 500, a roll of 500 um, 
exposure film in five inch by five inch, yeah. then um, we could do something really quite phenomenal because we have we have great documentary coverage. We do an awful lot of radio podcasts. Um, we do uh, national and international press and news articles all over the place. Yeah. Our social media. For anyone listening, follow our social media. <laughs> We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We have a YouTube channel coming soon. Uh, we've been filming for the last year to put that. We'll be putting out a number of videos about the history of 810, the history of the individuals, and then we'll be doing monthly videos on the restoration and how it works. And yeah. we're doing some filming uh, on Tuesday next week, actually, which is going to show how we make some of the frames and how we actually restore some of the bits. And we go through the process. We follow the process of recovering apart from the wreck examining it, inspecting it, treating it, cleaning it, painting it and installing it then into the aeroplane where we go forward. So right. all of this stuff to have people join us on the journey of what we're doing yeah. with the restoration of the aeroplane so they can understand it and, and show how much effort we're putting into putting original parts in yeah. uh, and that we can explain the systems we learn it. We're going to cover, I'm going to do an episode on the machine gun fittings in this and say, look, this is what we've learned from the wreck. We can't use these bits because they've been damaged and distorted and, and heated up from the fire when it was shot down. Yeah. Or it's got whacking great big bullet holes and cannon holes. So, I mean, we found 200 bullet holes in the wreck and 50 cannon shells wow. that had gone through this thing. It was a mammothly awful fight for this young man who was 22 at the time yeah. when he was shot down by Heinz Nog. Um, went through. And, you know, that's a, that's a moment of history frozen in time at that point. Yeah. And we can learn a lot from it. So nothing goes. We see all this rubbish on the internet where they go, oh, it's just a data plate. You can't do data plate rebuilds. The CAA do not allow it. Yeah. You have to have a substantial amount of aeroplane and they come and survey it and they come and look at it and they go through it in great detail. Yeah. It is very difficult to get a wreck accepted by the CAA for restoration. It may be that you have to replace most of it. That may well be true. Yeah. But you cannot just go and get a data plate off eBay and go and register it. Yeah. 20 years ago, yes. Maybe even 10 years ago, yes. Certainly not now. You need to have a measurable amount of aeroplane. Right. And I'm talking in not quite tons, but not quite far off. Yeah. You've got to have the middle of the aeroplane. you really got to have a bit like an AIB investigation. Left tip, right tip, back, front. you got that, and as much in the middle, you stand a chance. But yeah. it's not guaranteed. And we get all of this stuff all the time. Oh, it's just this. Oh, is it? It's really not. Go to our website. Look at the work. We've just got nearly 400 bits out of the starboard wing, just out the D-box. Yeah. Right? There are some airplanes that have got less than 400 bits in it. Original. This is yeah. just the leading edge of the right-hand wing. Yeah. You know, we laid out that great photo that everyone's seen of it laid out on the stage. And we went, it's not much there. That's what we could lay out in two hours before we had to pack it away again. <laughs> you know, <laughs> after 10 days of pulling it off a mountain, right. we're all kind of tired, really. We laid the big bits out. Yeah. Um, that's what we try and get over to people, that we, we try and do this, but we want them to come on this this journey. We share this learning thing that we're doing. You know, I, I know quite a lot about Spitfires. I've worked with them for very many years. I'm very fortunate in that, and I'm a real nerd that I can recognise some nuts and bolts and fittings and everything else and where they come from the aeroplane. Yeah. But I want to share that. And I want to say, look at this, we found this. I wasn't aware of this. Or we found this, look at that. That's a really weird way of manufacturing things. But this is what was happening. This line of rivets is all shaky. We can use this bit, but it means we've got to look to see if it's too shaky yeah. and, and, and explain to people that this is what's involved with restoration. We take kids to the workshop and show them how we bend and press and stretch metal and everything else because it doesn't matter if they end up going into a computing-based industry. Metal is metal. Physics is physics. You cannot change the laws of physics. Yeah. 
you can change the laws of science or even interpretation of science, but I won't go into that. <laughs> um, but physics doesn't seem to tend to change. So if you are going to have something that's going to be produced by a machine, if the metal's too thin and the wrong heat treatment, it will tear, whether you're hitting it with a hammer or you're doing it in a press. Yeah. So you, there's a basic fundamental understanding that is often getting largely missed out of schooling. And we can explain that with something rather cool and interesting because even kids have seen The Great Escape. They've seen the Steve McQueen film. Yeah. They've heard about the motorbike. I don't really care that there are large inaccuracies within the film. It means that I can go into a school of kids I've never spoken to and said, anyone seen The Great Escape at Christmas? About the guys escaping it? And half of them will put their hands up. Yeah. And I'm already there. I say, that's a real story. And this is the actual story behind it. That film I have to thank for that. Yeah. If it yeah. didn't exist, we wouldn't know as much as we did today. Exactly. But that's why I think Sandy Spitfire is really special. It's the earliest reconnaissance aeroplane military, because the Electra is, of course, now flown, civilian one, but it's the earliest surviving unarmed military aeroplane. Yeah. It's the only aeroplane that has anything to do with anybody from the Great Escape. Yeah. It's a reconnaissance aeroplane. It's got the highest number of hours of any surviving, operational hours of any surviving Mark I, because all of the fighter ones short, flew short 15, 20-minute things during the Battle of Britain, so even the one that's at Cosford... Whilst it's got hundreds of hours, most of it all happened non-operational. Right. When it was in the OTU afterwards or in the maintenance unit and things like that. Yeah. But they were flying short 20-minute, 30-minute sectors. 810s fly five and a half hours at the time yeah. in 30-odd missions. Yeah. You know, it builds up a huge number of frontline operational hours. That makes it really special Definitely. to me. And it has a huge amount of original material in it. And it's going to be the most accurate that we can. I want that grand champion at Oshkosh. I want the Goodwood Revival Prize. I want whatever I can win down at Wanaka for the most <laughs> wonderful thing. I also want that wonderful backdrop you've got of mountains for the aerial say, shots and all that yeah, sort of stuff. But it's so. important. You've got 44 New Zealanders who flew aeroplanes like it. Let's take it to as many of these countries as we can yeah. and say, look at what these guys did. Yeah. Really get behind it. So anybody who wants to... Talk to us, help us. They can get contact through the social media, through the website, which is www.spitfireaa810.co.uk. If you add national hyphen monument on the end of that, after a backslash, you get to our monument page. We have a shop page. You can get the books, which is the story. We can get prints of what we've done. You can sponsor rivets. Um, we'll have some other merch coming up later this year. But if you look at the monument page, you'll see everything that we're doing there. If you look at the, for you who serve, little, uh, for those who serve, which is a little banner at the top of the thing, click on that. That will give you the list of everybody that there. It's not broken down by country. It's broken down alphabetically. Yeah. But look through the list go, oh, that might be a relative. Or my relative, I think, did this. Have a look. Get in touch with us. The contact thing, it comes through to a central server. It eventually gets to me. There's a couple of us who monitor the emails. Social media will also get to one of three or four of us who will pick it up and we'll look at it. Get in touch if you've got any information. Uh, it doesn't matter. Everything's monitored relatively all the time. I'm only going to be four or five hours from, yeah. <laughs> from it getting to me eventually and answering. So yeah. do bear with me because <laughs> I get an awful lot of emails. Um, but I'd rather get more emails and take a while to come back to people. But we get the information yeah. than um, scratching around for it because I want to make sure everyone gets recognized uh, and that we can get this done. And watch this space because there'll be more in your press soon. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much, Tony. This has been a Absolutely amazing conversation. Thank you. Very Excellent. Much. That's no problem, Dave. It's a pleasure. Cheers.
That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.